instead of having this powerful refrigerator, we are going to design an algorithm that will manipulate information. And by manipulating information, you are going to make that your system looks like the one that is called down. And also quantum thermodynamics is very promising for helping to make the link between the quantum theory and general relativity. For example, your GPS is also using mathematics from general relativity. And actually without it, it would be impossible to have a GPS. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. Hey, this is Luis. Welcome to Welcome Podcast. This episode, I bring a conversation I have with my great friend Nayeli Rodriguez. Nayeli has a PhD in physics from the University of Waterloo and is now doing a postdoc at UC Berkeley. The curious part about her is that she's an academic grandchild of Stephen Hawking. Naye talks about quantum computing, its link with quantum thermodynamics, and the possibility of linking quantum theory with relativity. Hope you enjoy it. Naye, finally, how many attempts? Second uh, one, let's see. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but attempts to like kind of set up a date to, <laughs> to record this. I don't know, like maybe five? Maybe. Five? I think mm. so. I think it seems that you think that there are more than five, but... <laughs> yeah, I, it, it seems to me that they're around, I don't know. Uh, it was a little bit hopeless at some point. I was like, oh, I'll probably will never have Nai in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but finally. Finally. Yeah, no, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, no, thank you for coming. I'm sorry for making you wait <laughs> too much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh last time we, we already recorded one uh and it was it was really interesting it seemed to me but i think there's a lot of things that i didn't quite get to explore and now that I, i'm kind of choosing a path for the podcast i would like you to talk to us more about your research like probably in a more of a explain me like i'm five level <laughs> <laughs> So it's probably more introductory and tell us like, um, for example, uh, you were telling us about how to kind of reset a quantum computer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's probably kind of the high level idea. (laughs) So, but it seemed to me that they didn't get to understand what was the connection with that and kind of the... Tell me what is like the the ramifications of your research uh, around and... But first introduce what the research is and then... Uh, Yes, what I'm doing is physics and then like in particular studying quantum physics with tools from information theory. Uh So first, quantum physics is what what will explain you how the microscopic world behaves. So that's uh-huh. like the level of the molecules, atoms, the very, very little. And the reason to classify different than our scale is because they have a very different properties. For example, in the microscopic level, it's possible to have superposition of states. And by that, I mean that a particle can have two different states simultaneously. 
Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that we don't have, for example. It's not common that you imagine yourself in at two places at the same time, while in this microscopic level is something that happens, and people want to take advantage of that for creating technologies that we don't have or that can have something that right now is impossible. Mm -hmm. And one of these could be the quantum computers. So the difference of the classical computer and the quantum one is that for describing the bits, you can have in the classical one just zero or one. Mm -hmm. But if you use the quantum properties, you could have both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And for that, having a qubit that has two states simultaneously maybe doesn't sound too surprising, but if you start thinking, for example, two qubits, you can have four states simultaneously. Uh -huh. You have three qubits, now you have eight states simultaneously. So it's growing exponentially. Uh -huh. So with a very small number of qubits, you could have something like, I think like with around... 50 qubits, you could have something more powerful than the classical computers, the most powerful computer that we have right now. Uh -huh. So it scales very, very fast. And that would be very important, for example, for doing efficient simulations. And that's one of the problems right now that science has to try to study like many areas. One of them is physics. For example, when you try to study very complex systems, with your classical computer, you will face so many problems because if you want to describe with detail a complex system, you will need a lot of time for your computer to have the results. So with this uh -huh. qubit in the quantum version, you will be able to have these simulations that in the classical one would take forever in a short time or more like a feasible time for doing research. Uh -huh. And the application for that like, there are so many, like in science, for having more fundamental theoretical questions solved or at least tested. And for applications, it could go like from the design of new drugs, like medicine, that is very difficult or could take a long time to have them. Mm -hmm. And you have to have like different security for the communications. And actually, for that, I think you could tell more about how quantum could affect also in the security. Yeah, well, in our end, um, so most of the currently deployed cryptographic systems are, let, let me be more precise. So assuming that someone has access to a large enough quantum computer, mm -hmm. most of the currently deployed cryptographic constructions will be vulnerable to a, one particular kind of attack using that large enough quantum computer. Um, that excludes hashing in a way. Like it, it is possible to refurbish our current hashing constructions, uh, but in general, public key crypto systems, uh, all of the currently deployed they depend on either discrete logarithm or factorization for the security. Uh, they will be useless given the assumption that someone has access to a quantum computer. Uh, for a Sunday morning, this is the, the, the best I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so there's application that I'm mentioning is just like uh, one of these ramifications that we discussed the previous time. Uh -huh. And what I'm doing is 
studying the physics that is behind and what is required to have these quantum computers. Uh -huh. So there's like a set of requirements that you have to satisfy if you want to have like such machine. And one of them is the preparation of your initial state, which would be equivalent, for example, in your calculator when you put the zero. So every time that you want to start a calculation, you have to yeah. start in zero if you want to have the correct final result. Yeah. So in this case, good means that you need to prepare a system that uh -huh. would be your qubit and put it in the state zero. And a qubit is a two-level system that can have quantum properties. And by this, I mean that can have two states and you could also have them in a superposition. So there are many platforms and they propose different elements that could have these properties. For example, in molecules, they could use the spin of some atoms Mm -hmm. Because they could be aligned like up and down. So you have these two states, and because it's quantum, you could have the superposition. Other one could be the polarization of the light. You could have also like the vertical polarization or the horizontal one. And like this, there are like several. So in general, independently of what is the platform that you want to use, what you want to have in the beginning of your calculation is to know exactly what is going to be the initial state of your the system. Initial state, uh-huh. That would be the equivalent of uh, if you want to run a program to have zero in your RAM. <laughs> yes. Just, just to have like an, a draw an analogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in the physical system, the equivalent would be to know exactly what is the initial state. Uh -huh. The initial and value of knowing of your initial value is equivalent to have entropy zero. Uh -huh. So entropy is somehow like a measure of the lack of information. So if you know everything, it means that the lack of information is zero. Yeah. Okay. And something very interesting is that in information theory, you have this entropy, but in thermodynamics, you have the equivalent that is very interesting, that is the same expression. So the thermodynamic entropy, in this case, would be equivalent to have a system in the temperature zero. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have your system in this initial state, you will try to send your system to a very, very low temperature. Mm -hmm. In theory, temperature zero is impossible. So there's a law in thermodynamics that tells you you would never, never, never have temperature zero. Mm -hmm because it start getting like very, very expensive as you are getting very close to the zero. Trying to get a little bit closer to that zero temperature is very, very expensive. Uh -huh. But still, the way to prepare it is having these methods to extract energy from the systems and try to put it in the, in the zero. Uh -huh. So what I'm doing is deriving some methods in which you are going to manipulate information to decrease the temperature of system. And here is also different than the conventional cooling, because what we are used is to imagine that you will cool something by putting inside a refrigerator or making contact with something very cold. Uh -huh. So instead of that, because also that's very expensive, like if you imagine if you are in the lab and you want to have like a super powerful refrigerator is something very, very expensive. So what we do is also use, again, this analogy or this equivalence of entropy that is the same one for information theory and thermodynamics. So in this case, 
instead of having this powerful refrigerator, we are going to design an algorithm that will manipulate information. And by manipulating information, you are going to make that your system looks like the one... Like it's cooled down? That is cooled down, exactly. Oh. But what you are doing is just rearranging the information in your system to make it look like when you put it in the refrigerator. In the, in the fridge. Yeah. And the so it's like a virtual could... freezer. Yeah, exactly. So you are just like, you know how this system could look like if it's cold. Uh -huh. So you just go directly and change the information of oh, your system. that's smart. And for that, the cool thing is that you have already all the tools from information theory. So you just have uh -huh. to use them and design what would be the algorithm to put all your system in the way that it would be when it's called. Uh -huh. Oh, that's super cool. So that would not affect the actual temperature of the qubit, right? Mm, no, the cool part is that, yes, it will change the temperature of your... Would it change the temperature? Yeah, like it would change the The algorithm itself will change the temperature? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah actually, you are like... Uh, driving your system like in a deterministic way let's put it in that uh -huh. Uh -huh. and for this actually it's kind of funny because somehow it could seem that you're violating the laws of thermodynamics yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's but, but here the key is that first you are paying energy uh -huh. and second you are using this equivalence of information and energy Somehow they are like two sides of the same coin. So instead of going to tackle the energy, just go the other side, uh -huh. modify the information. So this is this is where last time you talked about uh, energy teleportation, right? It's, it's related, yeah, somehow, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see, I see. Yeah, it's a little bit more particular, the teleportation of energy, but yes, it's following these two sides of the same coin of energy and information. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And you said that it had applications some in other parts of physics. Yes, it could be also for help you to understand the thermodynamics of quantum systems. So uh -huh. that's still open questions in physics. So far, we have like a very strong theory of thermodynamics in the classical world. But uh -huh. in the quantum one, there's still a lot of open questions. And yeah, so that could be like one of the applications. You could use this also to... These tools to understand that? Yeah, to understand, uh -huh. help you to understand that. And yeah, that's one like the quantum thermodynamics. And also quantum thermodynamics is very promising for helping to make the link between the quantum theory and general relativity. So they are... Uh -huh. The funny thing is like both of them are very successful theories. But when you try to reconcile them, they are incompatible. So if you want to unify, let's say, the both theories, one of the most promising tools would be the quantum thermodynamics. If you are able to explain that, you could also help to make a little bit more like a consistent theory of both. Like a, like a connection between the two. Uh -huh. Between the two of them, yeah. And for that, yeah, it's going to be like fundamental to understand the quantum thermodynamics. So I have a few questions. Uh, let's let's come back to this connection if we have some time later on. But one of the questions I got in my thesis defense was, how far do I believe a quantum computer, a full-fledged quantum computer, is from 
reality or from being realized? And that was, I believe, a question that was uh, a bit hard for mm-hmm. me. I'm, I mean, I'm not in quantum computing. I'm in a mathematician. Uh, <laughs> what do I know about this? <laughs> I think you're you're probably a more a more appropriate person to ask that question. So, in your opinion, mm-hmm. uh, from what you know, how far are they from being realized? Yeah, I think that's a tricky question because it depends what you consider as a quantum computer. Because right now there are some of them, but they have like a very small number of qubits. Uh-huh. So I guess that question would be like when you would have a quantum computer that have the power that we are expecting. And for that, you still need a lot of control. Like it's very difficult when you start having like a large number of qubits. So in some sense, the answer is that right now we already have quantum computers, but still uh-huh. they are very, very more like the test. Or, uh-huh. Yeah. But for having one that you could say that already you have an advantage over the classical powerful computers that we have right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. That would be also like a hard question for me. <laughs> so that's, yeah, but right now, yes, if you just assume that you want to have a quantum computer that use the properties that is expected to use, Currently, uh-huh. we have some, but still they are not powerful enough because they are still small. So right now we, we have like quantum supremacy, right? Whatever that means. Is mm-hmm. like It means that there exists an algorithm and there exists a quantum computer such that this algorithm runs in that quantum computer better than it would run in any existing classical computer. Yes. Yeah, so that's probably the most precise statement that I can come up with. But that doesn't mean that this quantum computer will be a threat for cryptography or will be any useful for any applications that you mentioned, like uh, protein folding or simulations or things like that. So what was it? Since you started in IQC, uh, it was like seven years ago, and until now. How do you perceive the progression, the the advance in those seven years? You mean in the technology or in the person? <laughs> well, not, not not personally, but like in, <laughs> towards towards getting a quantum computer uh, to be realized. Actually, I think it's a little bit faster than what I would imagine because when I yeah. started seven years ago. I hear a lot that they were expecting to see something like in 20 years. Right. But I have heard some experiments that they are really working with the order of 100 qubits. So for me, it was like very surprising. Mm-hmm. There are some experiments that they are really trying to scale the qubits. So actually, I don't know too much detail about how is going the creation of the quantum computer, uh-huh. because some, I'm a little bit more like focused on the physics yeah, yeah, and that's the, behind. But sometimes, yes, it's a little bit like surprising when I see like what experiments are getting a little bit closer to uh-huh. computer. And also, the question that is like a topic of research and is very relevant is trying to find what problems this quantum computer would solve. So it's still like somehow quite open. They are still looking what algorithms. What other applications? You could have, yes, and what type of yeah. problems you could solve them. Uh-huh. Because right now, they just have like all this big promising that is going to be very powerful. But it still is open the question of, if you think in which type of algorithms you could see the advantage and why mm-hmm. or how they can be useful for applications. Yes, it's still something that is being studied. That, that's open. That's, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Because 
Well, I I don't remember uh, like other algorithms that don't in some way depend either on Grover's algorithm or on this uh, Shor's algorithm. I mean, they they all to me seem kind of variants of that. Mm-hmm. Or like probably it's not true. Probably I was thinking, uh, for example, this information teleportation algorithm is in a way kind of uh, something that you don't see in classical computers, right? Mm-hmm. Classical yes. information theory. And so that, that's something that I don't know what the um, the implications of the algorithm would be in the, the applications in real life, but it's, it's, it's a cool thing that you don't have in classical computers. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, there are many algorithms that... Yeah, there is expected that they would be better in the quantum computer. Actually, there is a nice website that is cool and it's Quantum Algorithm Zoo or something like that. So they have the oh, list yeah, of yeah, yeah. all the algorithms that could be better in the quantum version. I think, it's a I think co- they have like a very zoo. long... Yeah, Quantum Zoo. QuantumAlgorithmZoo.org. Yeah. yeah. And even though, like a very long list, I think, of the mm-hmm. It seems that there's a lot of... Um, applications, algorithm applications in, in algebra. That is very, very, um, it's very exciting for, from the mathematical point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's probably al- algebra in, in a way is, is very susceptible to, it's kind of more compatible with the way that uh, we view quantum algorithms. It, because it's, it seems to me that Classical computers and combinatorics seems very kind of uh, very connected, very close to each other. But the way that we see quantum algorithms, like in uh, kind of a superposition of things, and that draws to me like a, a very close picture to how we see algebraic structures. But anyway, that's probably like <laughs> off topic. So, <laughs> so you, you said that there, there was kind of uh, this potential of connecting uh, relativity and, and quantum theory. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Or Yes, one of the reasons that seems that is very promising is because of the black holes, the problem of the loss of information. Mm-hmm. And here you have somehow the overlap of both theories because in general relativity, you care about more like the big scale, and in the quantum, is like the very, very small. But the black holes somehow are like in the middle, so they're like a huge, like massive things, but still they are very small, and they could also have like properties of the quantum. So if you try to solve and try to understand what is the physics behind, and in particular uh-huh. about the information, you could gain information that can bridge both theories. Yeah, so that's also one of the... Do you know come of it uh, how... Because it, it, it seems to me that the, this, this seems somewhat unrelated. <laughs> to that? <laughs> to like, like, how do you draw a line from uh, quantum theory to... Well, I mean, the, the line from probably from quantum theory to quantum information is perhaps straightforward. Uh, but then from that to a general relativity, how, how do you, that line is, is very uh, 
fuzzy uh, in my mind. In particular, in the okay, you mean like in general how you have like this transition of this is behaving quantum and this is behaving. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, that is because of the um, scale in which the properties of quantum can survive. It's just like a totally different as the big objects. Yeah, and uh -huh. this is because in the quantum, when you have like a very big number of particles, the system will start to decohere. So that means that they start losing a little bit this quantumness. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's actually like a transition in which you would not observe these quantum effects, but because now you have like a larger system. So for example, in our world, we don't see like or normal days, this type of properties. But uh, mm, like where you put the line, you say? Yeah, maybe between quantum information and, and general relativity. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned that there is kind of, it will help you understand how this loss of information uh, happens. Mm -hmm. like, and what's the connection between that and, and energy and loss of thermodynamics? Uh, Yeah, actually, here, one of the problems that was hard to unify them because they don't have, like, many objects where you could see, like, both very strongly. So uh -huh. the hope is now that with the black holes, is like, a good point where you could have both. Oh, I see. Uh -huh. And general relativity is very, very good describing, like, the large scale and also includes the black holes. So they have, like, a very successful theories for that, but still there are many open questions that they cannot answer well, and they could also be related with quantum, because these black holes is somehow like in the middle, they would behave in both ways. And here the information comes in the... Actually, I'm not expert on that, so I'm just going to say like what I know, also kind of like popular science, I guess. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. In the black hole... When something enters, there's still the question of what happened with information. Mm -hmm. And it's not only that the whole information enters and disappears. Somehow also information goes out of the black holes. So that's part that can be described with the information theory and also is expected that would have properties from the quantum physics because the black hole you consider the, like, like a singularity, so it's a very, very small thing. Uh -huh. And... Yes, so it's like a key to have like a very strong theory of quantum thermodynamics because in this part you have like in the black hole how to study how the information is lost and actually what happened, where is it stored or where it goes and that also related with the thermodynamics of the black hole. But yeah, all of this is still kind of open question. It's not something that is well understood yet. But uh -huh. in case that you get to know better the physics behind that can give you also hints of what is happening in this interface of the both theories. Uh -huh. I've seen it in I mean, some forums online or uh, places that it is possible to kind of create mini black holes. Is, is it possible to actually create them or is it just kind of popular science that is not exactly true? There's some experiments in high energy physics. For example, in the Large Hadron Collider, they uh -huh. have like very high energies when you have the collisions of particles, for example, could be like proton-proton or uh -huh. this type of energetic collisions 
could create like for very, very short times black holes. And it's because you have like a concentration of high amounts of energy okay, in nice. a very small regions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's one of the ways that you could have like a very, for very short times, these black holes. Is that time enough for like a physicist to study it or is it kind of way too small to actually get something out of it? Yeah, actually, I'm not sure about that. Uh-huh. I think that's but an interesting question. A... Yes, if they could have like more information about that. But I think it's too short. But still, I guess they could gain some information uh -huh. about that. Is it far-fetched to uh, imagine having, I don't know, if, if you said a black hole has uh, both quantum and the general relativity kind of properties, would it be possible to, you know, put them all of them in, into a processor and call that a quantum computer in a, in the future? Or is that too far-fetched? If you could simulate that in a quantum computer or? No, no, no. Like if you could use, because there, there's like several uh, models to construct a quantum computer, right? And mm -hmm. it seems that uh, part of the problem is to have uh, have the state to be coherent for a, a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So would it be possible to incorporate black holes into the uh, to these models to create a quantum computer in the future? Or is it kind of way too far-fetched to think about it? It's science fiction. Um, yeah, actually, I'm still trying to understand why you mean like incorporating the black holes to the quantum computer. You mean like using the, um, the using properties? The, or using the... these quantum properties to uh, model our qubit with it. Or it doesn't even have anything to do with qubits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, right now, I don't see, like, a direct connection. But, of, like, the theory that you could use to describe the black holes is something that could be also useful for the um, design of the quantum computer. But uh, I think something that is cool about science is that sometimes you could be very surprised of the applications that something could have. So it's not that crazy to ask, for example, if black holes could be used for the quantum computer, I guess eventually some of the mathematical tools that you derive while you are studying the black holes could be also very uh -huh. useful for the quantum computer. <laughs> yes. uh, probably my question was too dumb for you to understand it. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I think I was imagining like having a qubit as a black hole. Okay, how can you? <laughs> but uh, yeah, the mathematical tools that you design, I think, could have like a lot of application in other type uh -huh. of technology or physics. Yeah, actually, it could be really very surprising. For example, your GPS is also using mathematics from general relativity. And actually, without it, it would be impossible to have a GPS. And by then, it was like, you could never imagine what could be the the applications of that. So out of all of these um, models to create a quantum computer, which one do you see more promising? Mm, that's a good question. Actually, that's a hard question because some of them could be very good at particular things, but they have big problems uh -huh. to satisfy the whole set of conditions that would require. Uh -huh. So... Um, yeah, I don't think I have like a favorite one for that. So you think that uh, for different applications in the future, people will use uh, different models. Let's say like for this uh, particular application, I will use um, light. And for this other particular applications, I will use uh, 
like low temperature uh no what i meant was more like you would have some requirements to have the computer and for example some of them are very good at having a large number of qubits but they are not that good as creating the global operations that you would need to implement on them mm-hmm. or some of them are very good at that but they had a lot of problems to prepare the initial state oh i see, or... I see. Yeah, so right now, there's some of them that are pretty good, but still they have like some big challenges to satisfy the whole requirements that you need for a quantum computer. Oh, I see, I see. I've seen in places that, I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, D-Wave has these quantum computers with this exorbitant amount of qubits, right? Uh, but then I've heard of experts saying, well, that doesn't tell the whole truth because that's not... Um, kind of noise tolerant qubits or something like that mm-hmm. uh, yeah and also since it's like a private the research that is behind it so there's uh-huh. some studies to try to understand if it's fully quantum or not uh-huh. i think right now the conclusion is that it's kind of an hybrid so it's not exactly exploiting all the quantum it's a hybrid uh-huh. yes uh-huh. oh What's the difference between having like a lot of qubits in uh, in, in superposition and actually having this kind of effective qubits? Um, I think the biggest difference it would be how it scales the number of qubits and bits that you would require to have the same, like the equivalent. Uh-huh. And it goes exponentially. So having, let's say like n qubits could give you the equivalent to have to the n number of bits so right <laughs> but i was meaning more like uh th- there's this problem with the um, noise right mm-hmm. that's why you, you require a lot of noise correction in in quantum stuff i'm, I'm just doing I'm, i don't really know this stuff <laughs> <laughs> yes no but also it's like a little bit different how they share correlations like having quantum correlations a little bit different than the classical ones uh-huh. If you have quantum correlations, you could also have entanglement. Like yeah. that's one of the properties, for example, that are useful for the teleportation of information. Uh-huh. So yes, that gives you some other effect that would be impossible to reproduce just with classical bits. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's also one of the differences. That's the one of the difference between classical computers and mm-hmm. yeah, because you would have also like quantum correlations. Uh-huh. But what I mean is that uh, <laughs> probably haven't been able to formulate my question really well. Uh, so there is a difference between having n number of qubits, uh, like in, in superposition, and then n qubits in superposition that are kind of effective, that you can work with them. Because I think you need, in, in order to have like n effective qubits, I don't know what's the actual uh, number, like actual name for it. But in order to have these ineffective qubits, you need to have like a little bit more so that you have some error tolerance. Oh, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you measure these additional qubits that you require for that? Yeah, to be able to implement the error correction. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it scales the number of auxiliary qubits with the number of computational qubits. I think that would also depend on what is the type of protocols for correcting errors. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. But I guess at least it should not be exponential. I think it's just yeah. like polynomial. <laughs> yeah, that, that <laughs> would be I don't know. Fun. Yeah, that would be funny that you would require like a lot of qubits for be able to have few 
traditional uh-huh. ones. No, uh-huh. I think it's just like, but I don't know what would be like the scaling with the number of computational qubits. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you would need also like a dynamical supply of very pure qubits to be able to do the correction while you are having the calculations. So you have to to be able to be incorporate able to, more. Yeah, like very dynamically to correct them while you are doing a computation. On the other side, you would have another protocol running ready to correct errors. So in in a in a quantum algorithm, I guess there's a lot more errors than there are in in classical algorithms. That's what you said mentioned about the correlation, right? That we don't have in in classical computers. So in quantum computers, you need you have this correlation. So that's why you need to have you need to have error correction, or or that's not the reason why. Yeah, one of the problems is the, that the system starts to decohere, so it's very fragile, and that uh-huh. is also related to the quantumness of the particles when they are like in a larger system. One of the biggest problems is that they start losing the, let's call it quantumness of the, uh-huh. the particles. So you need to be ready to also fix a little bit and try to improve a little bit. Yeah, like help you with this decoherence of the system. And also when you are doing the calculation, in practice doesn't mean that you would have perfect operations. So that's also like an extra reason to have the to have the, the error correction. Uh-huh. Error correction, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Because I never understood why people mentioned the difference between having, you know, n qubits entangled and actually n qubits that were effective. And in my mind, it's like, well, I mean, if you have sixty, why don't you just count it as sixty? Mm-hmm. But probably it's because the the number of qubits that you actually require to do a computation, like you know, compute short algorithm. Uh, Effectively, Sala. Yeah, and also if you want to preserve the entanglement between them, uh-huh. yeah, you would also need to be like fixing all this with error correction because entanglement is something that would disappear if you just let it interact too much with the rest of the oh. system. So, so the error correction will act, help preserving the entanglement somehow. Yeah, that could also help you too. Mm-hmm. But but w- when you do this error correction and preserving the entanglement, probably at some point you lose a qubit or something like that. Somehow, yes, you are using some like pure qubits to make some protocol that will tell you how you would fix a little bit the errors. Uh-huh. But for that, yeah, it's at the expense of consuming some, they call it ancillary, it's like these auxiliary qubits. Uh, so ancillary. you also need like a very dynamic supply of these very pure ancillary uh-huh. qubits. Okay, I think I, I, I learned a little bit more. Now I'm not, that <laughs> as, now I'm not as ignorant as I was before. Because it, it's, whenever I, it's very shameful for me that I go to a quantum talk and I'm like, oh my God, I don't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> what are they talking about? And, um, so yeah, I probably should learn a lot more. And that's even more shameful because when you're in the university we went to, everybody's very hyped about it. So. Yeah, not, <laughs> having, not having learned something from it, uh, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> yeah, oh, thank but you. I think that happened to all of us. Like when you're too specialized in something and you attend a talk, yeah. even if it's in the same field, but slightly different topic, I think all of us feel a little bit lost. Or at least that also happened to me. Like if it's not the topic I'm working, it's like, yeah, I understood the introduction, but, but then <laughs> in the that... middle, yeah, totally lost. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, our listeners understood a little bit more and uh, <laughs> didn't get lost right, at, right away. <laughs> well, now uh, to finalize, 
I would like to ask a more philosophical question. <laughs> okay. It's like kind of a, a, a gaming question. And so you're, you're in science, right? So in, I, I guess for, for you to even conceive the fact that the earth is not round would be a little bit crazy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> However, <laughs> there's many people that kind of actually believe that. Yes. Yeah, I have seen that. Actually, it's very shocking how people it's, now it's, they are having these theories. That... Yeah, yeah. The, so, assuming that you have, I don't know, you have a person that is actually very convinced about it, and with your resources, how would you prove them that the Earth is round? Assuming that if you show them a picture, they will not believe you because they, they will think, oh, that's a, that's a fake picture. How will you go about, like, from first-person experience, how will you go about proving that? Okay, assuming that they don't believe the pictures and they, yeah, they, don't, they won't believe, believe anything the that they have <laughs> hear from other... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they won't believe anything that they hear from other, uh, let's say, official sources. Yeah, I was thinking, like, there's basic experiments of what the first people to prove that the air was round Uh they were using shadows so they were like uh, seeing how the projection of the light could be different and then conclude that the earth is round but yeah i think if assuming that yeah i was going to say like maybe one of these experiments if they are able to see it they would trust it, but I'm not sure if that would be convincing enough because for this you would still need to do like actually it's like very simple calculations. So you just go to different places, and you uh-huh. have like the shadow how that would be projected on the floor at the different times, and you would see like is has like a, a different, different length. So you could have just like a simple calculation to see how that could be related to the shape of the earth and the uh-huh. and from then actually you can have like an estimation of what is the radius of the earth but i don't know that would be like convincing enough if they don't really trust in science <laughs> so that's <laughs> it you could do the, i don't know like, i think that's kind of a funny question actually i know one person that does not believe that the earth is round but i didn't try too hard to convince because i know that they also have like other other strange beliefs. Yes. Yeah, it, I think it is kind of tricky. I think it is kind of tricky. That's why pro- That's probably why they exist. Of maybe you know, like, what could be like a solution for that? Or no, I don't know. Like, I have an experiment in mind. Uh, I will, like, with limited resources, you cannot do much, right? So, I would probably call someone in China, or like in the other side of the world. And ask them to have a, you know, you can do a video call so to show you the sky. Call someone in Russia and then show you, show you the sky and then call someone in, in Europe and then show you the sky. And so, oh, there's the different times in the day. I don't but know. They, if they, they have... assume that is flat and everyone lives just in one part or they're assuming that it's flat and still there are people in both sizes. <laughs> So, yeah, that's, I don't that's know what actually what they believe, but yeah, if they assume that it's flat and everyone is just on the same side, I think that would work. But I don't know actually what they think about the other one, the other. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. 
I, I should probably know a little bit more if I'm going to ask these kinds of questions. <laughs> <laughs> what the actual theory is. Because I, I don't know how to explain time zones. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, so I, I think that's that's a uh, that's a, f- a fact that is hard to explain from the point of view of a flower editor. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would think that that's that's a hard thing to prove. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm trying to ask. <laughs> so my brother sometimes uh, says things, but I know that it's just for. Mm-hmm. For the banter's just just to troll. I don't yeah. think he actually yeah, believes that. <laughs> yeah, he's just to troll. Uh, which I think that many people that believe in or say quote unquote believe in flat Earth started uh, by trolling, and then o- mm-hmm. other people just took it seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so one time uh, I was reading this book, and one of the exercises of the book was. To to try to actually believe that the earth is flat so to get into the mind of a flat earther so it's kind of you try to do some deep meditation where you uh, realize that the only thing you have is direct experience of the moment mm-hmm. and realize that you don't really have you don't have a reason to believe that the earth is not flat <laughs> when when in when you just experience the moment I think maybe that would be easier also if you are like close to the poles. So imagine that you are like just in the top, like one of the poles, and then you try to go to the south and then to the, it could be like west or east, uh-huh. like for a long distance, and then go again to the north and go again to the same, to the same arrive place. to the same initial point. I think that could mm-hmm. also prove that it's like. With other geometry, you would know that, right? To the if it's flat, yeah. Yeah, but that 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 would require you to know where the south is when you're in the pole, right? So you you probably have to follow the the sun where this. Uh... Or actually, if you are just in the pole, you can just walk to any direction and keep just walking, and then yep. try to go uh-huh. like in. Where you are, just like try to go in like ninety degrees to the left or to the right, and then go again. But when you go ninety degrees, so you go back in the south, right? And then when you go ninety degrees, if if you're on the pole, you you can't go straight. You can't go in a straight line because then then you actually draw a square. You have to go kind of in a circular arc. Yeah, the reason that you are doing the arc is because it's round, but for you. Yeah. Locally, it could just be like a... a straight line? A straight line, but it doesn't, yes. It... So actually, that's kind but... of the funny thing, because for you, it's just like a straight line, and then when you want at some point go again, like go again like ni- 90 degrees, local, because that's not like the... But does it, does it look like a straight line? It, it looks... I think it locally, it also looks like an arc. It's just that this arc is actually following uh, yeah. the east. I think if you, if you are actually close to the pole, it will look like an arc. It will look very, very circular. It's just that geometrically it is a straight line by the geometry of, of the sphere. Uh, and it, that geometry actually follow this tangent. The tangent is, is, uh, is the east. Yeah, it is, it is kind of it's, it's complicated to design an experiment, I think. 
<laughs> so, okay, so I'm, your brother just, is trolling you. <laughs> my brother is trolling me. Yeah, I'm just trying to share uh, <laughs> empathy to the flat earthers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> ah, it's, uh, because, well, in, in my opinion, I don't think... Uh, I think many many of those people may actually be doing science, probably in the wrong way. But when when you're following somehow methodology or trying to explain something with your with your own experience and with your own results, then what you get at the end is some scientific uh, I won't call it truth, but some scientific result that probably the result is 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 false at the end uh, because mm. you don't have you don't have access to the entire truth because if you had, you realize that the earth is not flat. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's kind of funny. Like if you have just like a telescope and you are looking the other planets, all of them look very round, and you are expecting that the Earth is the only one that is flat. Like if you see like yeah, even yeah. Jupiter, you could see like very spherical. With uh-huh. so yeah, I think maybe that is also kind of ignoring evidence. Like why they would just not trust the evidence like in many different scenarios i don't know like it's something that is it appears in so many different places also if you just look at the moon it's like very round the planets the <laughs> yeah yeah that is for sure mm-hmm. it's hard to argue that <laughs> <laughs> that this is the only place that is flat uh, but at the end of the day, I think the first-person experience doesn't immediately provide you with uh, the answer that the Earth is round. That's, yes. That's the thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I guess also because for us, it's something that since we are kids, it's just like a, something that is a fact. No one proves yeah, yeah, you, yeah. actually. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's round, and everyone agrees it's round. And there's many ways to verify it, but still, when you work it, no one actually show you the proof. It's just like you just got a picture of it. So like, look, that's what it looks like. It looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for you as a kid, it's just like okay, so you just accept it, but it's not actually that you really uh-huh. think that it was proof. It's just like okay, the picture and the adult said that it's round. So it must be. <laughs> it must be, but. <laughs> And that's probably why we get very emotional. You can see, even when I, the first time I tried to actually imagine that the air was flat, because there was a lot of contradictions in time. It's like, no, no, that can't be no, true. No. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so yeah, pro- probably that's a discussion from for another time. Like, why do we have so much, so many emotions in in science? <laughs> yeah, no, but there are many questions. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are many things to analyze and philosophize about. Well, Naya, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, having been here, I think. Yeah, it's no, thank you very much fi- for inviting me. Finally, finally yes. we, we made it. We made yes, it we made it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, bye-bye.